Hello, everyone, and welcome to Rural Spark, the podcast on rural innovation in Canada, both social and economic. I'm your host, Helen Murphy. This week, we take a look at the growing trend in co-working spaces that we see popping up in cities across Canada and around the world to see if they have a strong potential for development in rural communities. Attracting remote workers is, of course, one way of stemming the tide of out-migration in rural Canada. So does having a vibrant, modern co-working hub help sweeten the appeal? This week, we invited Andrew Button to Rural Spark to talk to us about this. Andrew owns two co-working spaces in rural Nova Scotia and has a long history in fostering rural entrepreneurism in Atlantic Canada. Good morning, Andrew, and welcome to Rural Spark. Good morning, Helen. Thanks so much for having me on. You know, uh, before we get into talking about co-working spaces, Andrew, I-, I wonder if you can give us a quick introduction to your own background in rural business and entrepreneurship that led you to your current pursuits. Sure, happy to do. And thanks again for having me on the podcast. I've been loving listening to the episodes you guys have been producing. I think it's a conversation that's that is absolutely needed. So I spent uh, the Coles Notes version of how I got to where I am today and what I'm doing today. I'll give you the, the short version of that. So I spent about 15 years in various sort of business and economic development roles, both in the private sector and directly within government. And then for several local economic development agencies. And um, in the 18 months prior to launching uh, my first company, Mashup Lab, which is kind of the the company that the co-working spaces that I now own are are sort of housed under, uh, I was on a bit of a road tour going to all kinds of conferences, being invited to summits and speaking panels around entrepreneurship and innovation. How do we turn our rural economies around and that kind of thing? And the pinnacle of those 18 months um, was really the Ivany report that came out. And it was a, a really sort of, you know, pointed call to action for, for me personally, but Nova Scotians in general, but to me personally saying, listen, we're, you know, somebody's got to do something and we can't just be talking about doing something all the time. Uh, somebody has to step up and in particular, somebody other than government has to step up to, to do this. And just everything I was hearing and thinking about and frustrated by over those 18 months really uh, lit a fire underneath me. And at the time, I was actually working out of the hub, so sure, Home Bay, which is a, the co-working space that, that I now own. I can get into the story of how that all sort of came to be. But uh, I was working there surrounded by entrepreneurial people doing entrepreneurial things, having these conversations around why I was so frustrated that the things I wanted to see in the world weren't happening. And then finally, somebody said, well, Andrew, like, what are you waiting for? Like, why don't you go do it? Like, get started on something like, you know what it is you want to do. So just figure out how to go do that. And, uh, you know, fast forward five years uh, since that point, we we now founded a sort of a community backed micro grant organization that's completely charitable called Awesome So, uh, so Sure. Uh, we've given a, over 50,000 bucks worth of micro grants to people that want to do awesome things to make our community more awesome. Uh, we've evolved our dream business program under Master Lab to, in the last 12 months, help uh, 100 entrepreneurs in 60 different rural communities start 69 uh, different companies in those communities. And I founded uh, another co-working space in Bridgewater, Nova Scotia called Co3. Um, about three years ago, and then just back in October of 2018, uh, everything sort of came full circle, and I ended up 
acquiring the hub South Shore in Mahone Bay, another co-working space that was founded by three entrepreneurs in, in that uh, that community. And we're bringing those co-working spaces under a new brand called Work Evolved. Wow, that's a lot of busyness there in uh, rural business and entrepreneurship, Andrew. And I th- it's interesting that you went from actually being a, a user of a co-working space in a rural community to an owner of one. So we're fascinated to hear more about that. When people hear about co-working spaces, I think, understandably, they may um, picture them in urban centers. And we do see them. I, I understand that in Toronto, and I don't live there, but that they've really taken off in Toronto, that it's really big. And it might speak to some of the real estate costs there as well. But in other cities across Canada and around the world, really, we see see co-working spaces uh, really growing in number and scale and all that. But there is perhaps a particular need and advantage of having co-working spaces in rural communities. You run two such centers, as you mentioned. So I'm wondering if uh, for listeners that aren't that familiar with the whole concept of what a co-working space is, um, if you can give them a little bit of an overview of what we mean by a co-working space and uh, tell us a little bit about the two that I understand they're a little bit different one from the other, uh, the models that you have operating right now in rural Nova Scotia. Sure. No, I'm happy to do that. And I guess the, the first thing uh, I would say is I think the, one of the biggest challenges we have to explain this concept is we're using several different terms to describe these types of spaces that is synonymously, and they're actually very, very different things that serve very different purposes. So we have co-working spaces, shared office space, business incubator, innovation hubs, community hubs, co-location space. Like these are all terms that people are using interchangeably. But if you really get to the heart and core of what the purpose is that of that space and what community it serves, they can be very, very different things. So I think the thing that people sometimes get confused by is that they say, oh, we want a co-working space in our community, but really what they're looking to build is a co-location space for government offices, mm-hmm. or they're looking to build an innovation hub, right? Like something along the lines of what Matt Dunn and, and the folks at the Center on Rural uh, Entrepreneurship or Innovation are, are doing down in the, in the States. Right. So these things are very, very different models and they serve very different purposes and very different communities so so i think that's the first thing to really identify something that i'm just kind of learning about and and, you know observing uh in uh, over the course of doing this so a lot of people will go to a larger center and see a a space and go back to the rural community and say oh we want a co-working space but really it's something different that they saw it really wasn't quite a co-working space or we want an innovation hub here, and really, what their you know the market in in that community is is really the need is for a co-working space. So we're seeing a lot of confusion around around mm-hmm. that. So the work evolved spaces that, that I own and and manage, uh, I describe them as shared workspaces for freelancers, entrepreneurs, and people that work independently or remotely for for other companies. And we've chosen that language very intentionally, and so it's not a community hub. It's not a we don't describe it as a business incubator, even though all of those kinds of things happen. Uh, it's a shared workspace for freelancers, entrepreneurs, and independents. So we currently have over 60 members now that use the space in various ways. And the two spaces that we have, Co3, which I founded three years ago in Bridgewater, uh, is a very, very different space than the hub so sure. So even though they're both you know, shared workspaces and co-working spaces, the, the experience you get going into each of those spaces is very, is very different. Co3 is on the second level of the building and overlooks the LaHave River on one side and downtown Bridgewater on, uh, on another. It's got these huge windows, bright colors, very sort of vibrant, energetic space. 
And the hub, so sure, Mahone Bay, is on the main level of this uh, historic building that was an old sort of fishing wharf, you know, 100 years ago that's been repurposed uh, with a beautiful mug, the Mug and Anchor pub just upstairs. But this really interesting, eclectic mix of people working in this space and on the main level. So lower ceilings, lots of wood, very sort of cozy, lots of nook and, nooks and crannies where people can really sort of hunker down and, and get uh, really focused work done. So, um, so bringing those two spaces underneath one company made a ton of sense to, to me and allowed me to go to market with very two very different experiences, but within the same community of people that were building around the space. Right. It's interesting. It's almost, I mean, I think we have to remember that it's not one size fits all. And it's almost like they each have co-working spaces, not just yours, but I guess anywhere. They all have their own unique personality and their own unique uh, service package that they provide. Absolutely. And actually, when we acquired the hub, uh, we really thought uh, long and hard about what do we do with the brand and how do we, what do we call these things and how do we talk about them? And we tried to, you know, explore the option of bringing, just rebranding them all under sort of this work evolved brand, this new label. But, you know, I didn't really feel comfortable with that because, you know, it's not like a Tim Hortons. You're not going to get mm -hmm. the same experience, you know, when you walk into one in one community as you walk into another. So they are, they do have their own personality. They do, they do have their own identity. They do have their own cluster of people that tend to congregate to each one of the spaces or the other, and while there is some crossover in between, which is really interesting. But it didn't make any sense to me to try and jam both of these co-working spaces into this one brand just because it was going to make it easy for us from a marketing standpoint. So, uh, so I believe there's a real that's a really fundamental value if you're looking to do and expand these kinds of spaces across rural Nova Scotia, rural North America, really. Uh, it really does have to represent not only the community they're located in, but the community of people that are, are congregating around that space. And I think that's just a really important part. So we've since kept the branding, the identities independent, but they're now called, you know, the hub, a work evolved rural co-working space. Right. And as you know well, Andrew, uh, rural communities across Canada are struggling with out-migration and looking for different uh, solutions to that. And uh, some people are, I think, looking at whether a co-working space in their community might help in terms of attracting the remote workers. Uh, the new digital economy really allows people to, more than ever before, work from where they want to work from. And I think there's a big attraction in working in some of the most beautiful rural communities in Canada. So if you can do what you like to do professionally and you can do it from wherever you want to live, that's a big bonus. Uh, are you seeing that as being an attraction of the South Shore, Nova Scotia is beautiful where you are? Are you seeing that, um, you know, the remote space as being part of what a community can offer to help really build that remote employee, the remote worker uh, presence in the community? Mm -hmm. So I guess my answer to that would be maybe. And, mm -hmm. and what I mean by that is it really depends on what that community is building, right? So for example, if the business model that's behind that space that they're creating is really based on co-location, right? So we have several sort of, you know, government people that are working in independent offices. We're going to bring them all to together in one location, a co-location model, which may make financial sense, but one doesn't necessarily isn't all that attractive necessarily to a remote worker, right? Mm -hmm. So the personality and identity and purpose of, of those spaces is really what it boils down to. But if, if that's what a, what a community sees as like the thing that's being looked looked for in that community, then absolutely. Like we have several examples 
I, I would say if I had to take a guess, 20% of our membership uh, are people that work remotely or independently for companies all over the world. So we've got a, a guy that runs a whole division of a huge software company that's based out of San Francisco and Boston out of our meeting room at Co3 in, Br in Bridgewater. He runs that whole division and just flies where he needs to. Uh, we have another young guy grew up in Bridgewater, moved away, got a job with a, an accounting firm in London, Ontario, decided to move back with him and his family and um, is working remotely for that accounting firm from our co-working space. So it, there absolutely is the potential for that, but I think it really has to be intentional in terms of what it is you're, you're building and who it is you're looking to attract into that space. You know, the, the approach that we've taken is really trying to make that space welcoming to a broad range of people not only because I think there's some real advantages to getting that eclectic mix of people sort of, you know, intersecting and colliding in a, in a space like, uh, like we've created, but I also think there's a practical, you know, business model reason to do that, right? So we, we don't have 10 tech startups on the South Shore to, you know, co-locate into a, a quote-unquote innovation hub. Uh, but we have lots of people that work independently, lots of freelancers that work independently, lots of entrepreneurial people doing entrepreneurial things. So we wanted to make sure that you know not only the space we were creating reflected that, but also the way we talk about it and who we were looking to attract into the space was really intentional around that as well, because you know the, the business model is fundamentally built on that. Right. And do you think that's part of the misconceptions that we see out there, Andrew, is that a lot of people from a distance would think that these spaces are for tech employees or tech, uh, you know, uh, tech entrepreneurs where they are there, but that in rural communities, you're going to find that that's just one piece of the puzzle. And like you say, there is quite an eclectic mix of people who can come to these spaces. Yeah, I, absolutely. I, I, it drives me crazy, actually, when, you know, I start talking about what it is I'm doing. Somebody says, oh, like, how many tech companies do you have there? Mm -hmm. I'm like, maybe four right? Right. <laughs> like of the 60 are uh, tech companies. I think we've been trained, like the dominant narrative around entrepreneurship and innovation has led us down this path, and for good reason. But I think it is such a narrow narrative around what that means to be innovative and to be an entrepreneurial person that, you know, 90%, you know, just to throw it a random number, uh, of our entrepreneurial talent in these communities really do doesn't see themselves in, right? They, they don't resonate with that narrative. That's, they're talking about somebody else, not me. And I, I think that's, it's a huge misconception that, that people have around, around these spaces. And what I'm learning as, as you create a space that generates that accelerated serendipity, those intentional sort of collisions between a tech startup and a jeweler and a blogger and somebody that does direct response marketing and an immigration mm -hmm. lawyer and, you know, all the other types of businesses and, and people that, and expertise that we have, you know, flowing in and out of the space, some really interesting sort of innovations have happened, right? They're, they're not things that you're going to find in a laboratory in some university somewhere, but it is innovation nonetheless. And I think that's a, a huge misconception that people have. And I think, you know, you have, again, this idea of building something, an intentional community is not a part-time job, right? It's, it's something that, that you have to be intentional about and you can't take your foot off the, the pedal. It has to be something you're doing consistently day in, day out. So I think there's people think they can build a space and it will naturally kind of happen and maybe it will, but I think it'll take a long time to get there. And as a, as a result, like the business 
you know, fundamentals just start to crumble with, you know, the longer you stretch that, stretch that out. So, uh, so yeah, I think there are some big, some misconceptions around what people feel these spaces are and do for their community. Right. And do you think some people, whether they're on the remote worker side or the entrepreneur side, maybe try out the home office route first and then find that it's just not the productive space that they thought it would be? I think um, from my own experience, I, I went that route myself. Home office sounds great. Get it well equipped for what you need. There was a number of reasons I decided to try out a co-working space instead. And uh, one of them was that my golden retriever demanded my undivided attention when I was home <laughs> all day. I didn't foresee that happening. So, um, But are you finding that some people do try that or even the coffee shop model, right? where they're going out and think they're going to work in a coffee shop all day. Um, yep. But that's really not going to give them the productivity and the inspiration that they're looking for. Absolutely. I mean, I found myself in that position, you know, six years ago when I started working from from the hub. So at the time, I won't bore you with the, the details, but I found myself as a founder of a new not-for-profit locally and was working from home because we just didn't have the budget to spend, you know, 10,000 bucks a year in an office that was never going to be in. So, uh, so I tried the working from home thing for a while and it was a huge adjustment. And, you know, the novelty of being able to kind of, you know, roll out of bed, throw the kids on the, on the school bus and come back home, work from your jammies all day. Yeah. The novelty of that kind of wears off really, really quickly. And there are so many distractions and things that kind of get in the way. I was finding it wasn't really sitting down to work until about 10 o'clock in the morning, right? So by the time the dishwasher got emptied. Yeah, and, lost time. You know, and yeah, there's definitely lost time. But what I would say is that the people that do end up, you know, there's usually some sort of trigger, right? They they have a project they need to really focus on or they, you know, the kids are coming home from school at three o'clock and busting through the doors and interrupting their workday and whatever the case might be. And they, they're coming into this space thinking that they're coming to be more productive, but then that accelerated serendipity kicks in. And before they know it, they're having conversations that they would never have in their regular sort of routine. And they end up staying for the community and the motivation they feel when they're there and the inspiration they feel when they're there. And they're thinking differently about the problems and things that they're working on in their own work because they're surrounded by this eclectic group of people that have a really sort of different perspective on things. So I think there's, you know, a lot of people you know, struggled, you know, our lowest membership option is about a hundred bucks a month, which gets you a day a week uh, working from, from the space. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people have a hard time wrapping their head around why they would spend a hundred bucks a month to come work from my space when they have beautiful space at home, right? They, they're overlooking beautiful vistas and the ocean right. and, you know, all, all of these things. But I think when they begin to use the space and they're, and they have those kinds of experiences, then they're like, oh, now I understand why I'm paying that hundred bucks a month. It has you know, little to do with the space and the great internet and a decent cup of coffee it has more to do with the community of people that they sort of immediately plug into when they start using the space on a regular basis. Yeah, and something else that I've found related to that is that there seems to be an energy in these space. If you get a lot of people around you doing creative, interesting things that they're really passionate about, I mean, it has something to do with human energy, I think, that I find there's usually a lot of energy in the space that is contagious and contributes to your own work and uh, your, own, your own creative energies in, in what you're producing. I, I couldn't agree with you more. In fact, the whole reason Mashup Lab exists was because I was in that energy and that environment surrounded by entrepreneurial people doing entrepreneurial things. Like when you see other folks and have built those relationships 
your courage to go do something audacious goes through the roof, mm -hmm. right? It, it is absolutely contagious. And it kind of catches you by surprise sometimes. And you end up doing things that, you know, a year or, you know, 18 months ago, you would never think was even possible. And so it's really, really fun to see those things. What I would say, though, is like that kind of energy takes time. Like we're in year three of right. our co-working space now, and we're just now getting to probably not just now and probably happened, you know, 12 months ago where there was a critical mass of people around the space on a regular basis, day in and day out. So when somebody new showed up, there was that energy and vibe and, you know, the chit chat that was happening and people discussing interesting things around the, you know, the coffee machine and uh, around the kitchen table and that kind of stuff. But it, it took a solid 18 months to get there. So I think one of the, the fundamental things that people going into to this need to understand is that, you know, you're going to be sitting in a space with just one or two people for probably a long time, right. right, before you start to get that regular sort of, you know, community of people showing up to work from the, the space. And in fact, when I opened Code 3, it was like, this, I, I said, this is the, the worst decision I ever made. <laughs> like, I was working out of this awesome co-working space. Now I've opened up the space. I'm surrounded by these empty desks. And I can't even leave here. Like, I can't even go to where my, my tribe is because i got to be here just in case somebody shows up. Right. I'm like, this was the dumbest thing I've ever done. <laughs> And uh, finally, you know, luckily that only lasted for for a few uh, few weeks, and you know, people started showing up, and you know, the, the rest is history, as they say. But but I think people underestimate how much time, energy, effort goes into creating that vibe, creating that culture, creating that energy, and how you can again, you can't take your foot off the pedal. It has to be something you're you're waking up and focused on you know, week in, week out. Right. And what are some of the things you're doing in your spaces there, Andrew, to nurture that kind of culture? Like I know a lot of co-working uh, spaces, the ownership will look at, um, you know, having speakers come in or having, giving access to other resources. And I know you have a, you have a number of things on the go that relate to entrepreneurship. How is that culture nurtured and, and what kinds of things are being offered to the people who come into your spaces? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And it's usually one of the telltale signs of the thing that, kind of helps me understand what kind of a space, you know, people are looking to, to build is the types of things that they're doing in the space and the types of people that are, are working from there. So because we were looking to attract this sort of wide range of people, you know, we do a wide range of, of things to build that community, everything from very sort of, you know, non-meeting kinds of, you know, you know, coffee club kind of meetups where there's no agenda, people just kind of get around the, the table to things that are a little bit more semi-structured to things that are very much, you know, more social than, you know, than uh, sort of business oriented. And I think, you know, we, again, we've done that very intentionally because, you know, people find themselves you know, in those, those groups for different reasons. And, um, we do over a dozen different events every single month. And we usually host some sort of quarterly get together party where we not only bring the membership together, we also invite the community at large. So you get this sort of regular and consistent, you know, collision of you know, experiences, backgrounds, people. And what we're finding is that new people coming into the community, are like blown away that they can plug, almost immediately plug into a community, right? Some people coming to a, an area for the first time find it really, really hard to, you know, integrate into the, their new home, their new community and find people, you know, we're, we're seeing people that showed up a week after moving to the, the area and all of a sudden they're having, you know, supper parties and dinner parties with, 
with other folks from the space. Their kids are in the same on the same soccer team together. They're running into each other at the grocery store. They're going on beach, you know, excursions uh, together. So it's almost like a built-in community that that people get plugged into. I think people underestimate how much work goes into building that kind of culture. When somebody new shows up, that they have that kind of experience when they walk into one of our co-working spaces. It's, it's done very purposefully. Right. And I think it's fair to say that most rural communities in Canada do not have a co-working space like you're describing there. What do you think is the potential for these kinds of spaces more broadly in rural Canada? I, I think it's it's one of the keys that unlocks a lot of entrepreneurial ten, uh, uh, potential that is sitting quite frankly, unactivated in a lot of rural communities across this country. And that is sort of the whole purpose upon which I've built this, what I describe as a for more than profit company. And it's the thing that gets me the the most excited. And and this is not a new phenomenon. Mm -hmm. Like this idea of co-working existed a hundred years ago. You know, we just called it church or we just called it the local legion or we just called it a community hall. This notion of bringing people, like-minded people together to work on entrepreneurial things has existed for a hundred years. So we're just taking a new spin on it and putting a, you know, a modern sort of vibe to it and all, all that kind of thing. But the fundamental principles are absolutely the same. Right. So I think, you know, our rural communities were built on that kind of economy and culture. Right. They were built on this notion of co-working. And for all kinds of reasons, you know, our, our rural economy sort of shifted away from them, went into sort of large industry that these communities were built on. And and I think as those large you know global industries have come under some scrutiny and pressure, Rural communities now have, I think, a an opportunity to really reinvent themselves. Um, so it's not necessarily rocket science, but it's hard work, right? It's not easy. It's it's not complex, but it's not also not easy. And I think the potential for combining these types of spaces, also in accompaniment with some of the programming and events and activities that happen around the spaces, has huge potential right across rural North America, not just rural Canada. And it's clear from your experience that it does require some patience. And along that note, I'm wondering, uh, from your experience, you've given us a few tips already, but what for people who are listening who might be thinking about trying to establish a co-working space in their rural community, what's some of the advice that you would share and, and maybe some of the pitfalls that they should try to avoid? Yeah, great, great question. So I guess the first thing I would say, I get calls from communities, mostly throughout rural Nova Scotia on a regular basis saying, how do we get a work evolved co-working space here? And those calls usually come from some local, either a local counselor or a local community group or a local economic development agency. And, and that's, that's great. But what I would say is one of the biggest things I think is important is that more entrepreneurs in those rural communities should be looking at this. And it has to be, I'm a big believer of Brad Feld's uh, philosophy that he shares in his book, uh, Startup Communities. If folks on the podcast haven't uh, read it, they are interested in this stuff, they should pick it up. But he gives a pretty, you know, some foundational things that are in place. And he talks about this notion of leaders and feeders, that entrepreneurs have to be the one that's, that are leading these things. Mm-hmm. And everybody else in the ecosystem are ones that are sort of feed into that and support it in some, some way, shape or form. Not everybody agrees with that, but it's, a, it's certainly a philosophy I believe in. So I think that that's sort of the first thing I certainly look for when I'm exploring, expanding this you know network of rural co-working spaces is like, what is the entrepreneurial community in that area? And how do they feel about it? And who are they? And what types of things do they need? 
it's not just a cookie cutter model where we can kind of parachute a co-working space in and say, we're here to save you. Where's the red carpet? Uh, it certainly it doesn't happen like that. So that that's one of the things like uh, if communities are interested in, in this, engaging their entrepreneurs in that community to, to take this on as a as a mission, because I think that's what's going to be sustainable in the, in the long term. The other real sort of learning is from the I'm experiencing is that people are overemphasizing the importance of the, the actual space mm-hmm. and underestimating the effort that needs to go into building the community and culture around that space. So the thing that makes rural co-working very different than urban co-working is that in urban centers, square footage is the main value proposition. Like square footage is at a premium and it's super expensive, right? So if you can share the cost of square footage in an urban downtown core, like that's a huge advantage that you you and your your company and your business has. But in, in rural North America, we have more space than we know what to do with. Beautiful space, historic space, space that overlooks beaches and forests and rivers and lakes and oceans. We've got more space than we know what to, to do with. And I think people go to so, and look at some of these other models and see all of the cool things they have done with the space and say, oh, if we build that here, our entrepreneurial community will come. Well, it's not quite that that way. So I think people really need to focus on you know, the community and culture that they're looking to build around that space and, and what sort of community of people they're looking to attract and, and serve. And I think being intentional uh, around that is, is super important, really understanding what the need of the community is. Is the need a innovation hub? Is the need a co-working space? Is the need a co-location space? Really getting a deep understanding of that, I, I think, is, uh, is really important. And the other, you know, last piece of advice I, w- I would give people is just get started. Like, mm-hmm. you don't have to p- have a three-year strategic plan created in order to get moving on some of this stuff. You know, I went from the notion of an idea that we were going to build a co-working space in Bridgewater on a Friday, and then two weeks later, we were in a space with a, a lease agreement sign, ripping up carpet and building it out. And, uh, it, you know, it doesn't have to take, you know, as much as people think that, that it does. What it does have to take is that entrepreneurial leadership behind it in order to get to get going. And I think, you know, a sustainable business model sort of evolves from that. Well, that's terrific advice. And I think so there's the, the caution on the uh, patience and the evolution that it's going to take, but also just get at it. And uh, you're going to learn, I think, as each one of these has its own personality, each community is different. Um, the solutions for one community are going to be different than uh, another, and you're not going to know till till you get it going. Yeah. And I guess the, the only other thing I would say is like, you know, don't put money on the table you're not willing to, to lose. Right. right. So when I looked at building out this, this space in, in Bridgewater, I invested money that I said, you know what, I may never see return on that investment ever again. But it was worth it to me. And luckily, I was in a position to be able to, to do that. It was basically everything that I had made in the, in the company up to that point right. that I invested in the building of the space. Uh, I'm not, you know, independently wealthy by any stretch of the imagination, but I was willing to take that risk with that investment to say, you know what, I think this is just something that's going to be good for the community. And I feel like there's enough of a business model here that at some point, it may be 10 years, it may be 20 years that I'll get that money back. And, you know, luckily three years into it, we're now starting to, to see, you know, there's a light at the end of that tunnel, and who knows? I may even get get some of that that money, that initial investment back. But, but yeah, it, there has to be a bit of a 
you know, this is something that we feel uh, needs to be a community building effort, but it also needs to have a profitable, sustainable business model in order to serve that community long term. Uh, Very good advice. And thank you so much for sharing it with our audience today. I think a lot of people are thinking about this. It's something that we'll want to check back with you from time to time, Andrew, and see how things are going down your way and and with the other things that Mashup is doing. And um, please give us a shout when you see interesting co-working types of things happening in other parts of Canada, because I know you're well tapped into that network. Well, I would love to do that. And thank you so much for your work, Helen. I think this is a conversation that has been long missing from the narrative in rural Canada, rural North America. And I'm really appreciative that you know, you took action to, to create it. So thank you for that. Oh, thank you very much, Andrew. And we'll talk soon. Cheers. Bye-bye. And thanks to all of you for joining us this week on Rural Spark. Our team includes content producer Catherine Murphy and technical producer Tara Seabarth. Music is by Jason Shaw. We wish you all the very best for the week ahead in your part of rural Canada.